As I was reflecting on what to speak about tonight upstairs in the teacher wing, there was various ideas I had, right? There's so much to the Dharma, so many beautiful pieces to the map. So much that has happened today that I've heard about in the two small groups and the number of one-to-one meetings I've had. So much. And I was looking at different ideas and what I could offer. And the truth was, in the end, actually, I don't know exactly what would best serve us right now in the retreat in terms of teaching. So what I thought we could sit here together, which is what we're doing anyway, and hold that space together of the silence, the stillness, the love and interest in awakening. The space of not, of not knowing. You know, it's funny, I was reflecting... Um, If I'm coming to give the evening teachings, I'm really supposed to know, aren't I? I mean, isn't that part of the deal? Isn't that part of the deal? I remember once um, a teacher, he used to teach here actually, a German guy who was once a monk for many years in Thailand. And there's a story that he came to give the evening talk and uh, this is in a retreat where there isn't a talk in the morning or so. Right, so it's the only thing, it's the only kind of audible uh, activity that's happening for the retreatants in the evening. So he came in, it wasn't here, it was at a sister centre in America, and he came in and he sat down. I really like this story. He sat down for a while and he was silent for about five minutes. And then he said, The Holy Spirit's not at home tonight. <laughs> And he got up and walked out. <laughs> I like that. I also really like um, another teacher who you may have know or read his books, uh, Larry Rosenberg from the from Massachusetts. He was training in the Zen tradition and beginning teaching. He was a student, and his teacher asked him to teach a weekend retreat. I think it was over Christmas or something, something like that. And the week, the weekend was scheduled, and um, he was there to teach it. I think it was his first teaching experience or something like that. And he, you know, was ready to, to teach. And he said he was the only Jewish person in that Zen center, and everyone else was from a Christian background and gone home for Christmas, and he was the only one left, <laughs> right? And so he said to his teacher, "Well, I don't need to teach it." And the teacher said, "Teach it anyway." Teach it anyway. And the story goes that he taught the whole retreat with nobody there. Right? What would that look like? It's like following through with that commitment and love of truth because who knows what's really happening right here. So I don't know if the Holy Spirit's not at home, but there's always that possibility. So what is it that's arising now? 
for you in your location, on your seat, for me, the one called me who's supposed to be the teacher right now, what's actually arising in this location and what's arising together here? What is the listening like right now for you and for me? What are you aware of? Actually, there's one, another story. This is from a different tradition. Um, a teacher from a Qigong tradition that many of my friends practice in. Apparently, one time he came to give his evening teaching, or sometime during the day, and nothing was coming. And he said, there's no teaching coming. You're all listening wrong. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, I'd be not saying it right. It's like, right? How can there be teaching if there's no listening, right? So how's the listening? And I don't mean to me. I mean our listening. What are you listening to right now? Are you listening to your mind? That's, that's worth listening to. It doesn't mean we have to believe it all the time, but it's worth knowing what it's throwing up, what it's presenting. Listening to the silence, to the birds, to the space between all these words. And through these words, that these words can't even sully or taint or add anything to. And if you're listening to your mind, can you stay in the listening? that you hear the moan or the groan or the cry or the hope or the fear or the excitement or the anticipation or the disappointment. Can we hear that? Because as we practice more resting in the awareness, that knowing aspect, that knows the breath, knows the footstep, knows the sensation, it's, we could also have a synonym of the listening, that which hears, that which listens. Right now, can you sense that which is listening? (coughs) Right, and the sound arises, and his cough arises, or my cough, It's usually one of us, maybe sometimes one of you, right? The cough arises in that space, and what happens to the listening? 
Does the, does the mind go out to the sound and pick it up and fiddle? Right? Or do you go nowhere? And the sound falls back into the silence. I remember another story of um, Ajahn Chah, who's the teacher of some of our teachers, a great Thai forest lineage master, who apparently was a very happy, lovely soul. And some students were complaining about all the sounds and disturbances of the other students or the other monks and nuns there. And he said, the sounds don't disturb you. It's you that goes out and disturbs the sound. Right? So something happens very fast. And I want to, maybe I can look at this with you a little bit. Somebody was saying in the group today, um, I'm able to really have a good sense of my own presence sometimes, right? She said, I can really sense that and I'm here and I'm with what's happening. But once I get into the realm of being with an other, things happen so fast that it's hard to track, that it happens so quick before I know it, I'm in my normal how I am with the other pattern. Do you have any normal how you are with the other patterns <laughs> or arrange a few options of how we are with the other <coughs> so maybe we can look at that together now how are we with the other the so-called other one way that uh, awakening can be poetically described also is the end of confusion about self and other the end of confusion about self and other. Can you imagine right now how it would be to sit here or how maybe it is to sit here where the problem goes out, the issue goes out of self and other. Imagine being in this room of however many we are, 60. Someone else mentioned today, actually, in the walking, that they were walking and people were going back into sitting and they were walking and walking and there was one other person walking and they were really enjoying their walking and there was expansion and enjoyment. And then the other person left and they were the only person left on the lawn walking. And then they noticed another level of relaxation which she didn't know was missing when the people were there but something about the solitude for her allowed a deeper level of relaxation so we want to get interested in those places which are only revealed actually when there's more opening when there's more refuge in awareness we start to see the ways the confusion around self and other arises Um, 
One way the Buddha talks about this with regard to practice, because it's very interesting with solitude, isn't it? Some of us may be more inclined towards the solitude in order to have our peace, or we go into nature to know and have our peace. Some of us may be more attracted to being with others in order to feel ourselves or feel our existence. And there was a question arising yesterday morning about intimacy and non-attachment. Do you remember in the morning questions? And it came up in the group, a couple of my groups with a few people as well. It's like, so here's one of the way, I'll try and, I don't know what I'm going to try and do, but here's some teaching coming up right now from the Buddha, which I really appreciate with regard to this. There's a word in the Pali language for which gets translated as solitude, which is viveka. Viveka. And when we think of solitude, what do you think of in your mind? Right? You've got an image, probably, very lightly, of someone or you on their own, right? There aren't any others. (laughs) That's what solitude conventionally looks like. And it's a useful practice because it it may be our calling, it may be our deep calling for some few beings. And for some of us, taking times of periods of solitude can let us settle more, slow it down, understand the arising more of the heart and mind. But that's a kind of conventional view and translation of solitude. The, apparently the more accurate translation of this viveka is non-bonding, like not gluing, not being glued to something, not being bonded like copy decks. That kind of, not non-bonding. And I want you to leave aside the normal understanding of bonding, which is, you know, can be beautiful. This is bonding where we're glued, stuck. We've this kind of sticky adherence to the other thing. So solitude is non-bonding. And practice, there's three kinds of viveka that are spoken about. I'll probably speak about two. One is called kaya viveka, the solitude of the body, of the form which is what you're practicing here in a way. There are other beings around, but there's a way we learn to come into our own embodiment rather than being bonded to all the other things that are around us. Right? You might get a sense, you probably know that from your experience, but if you're new to practice, maybe you're beginning to get that sense that you're landing more and more in this location here. Right? Any of you get a sense for that? You can just kind of <laughs> nod or, right? You're just more and more here. Less um, going out, leaning forward to be in relationship, or less pulling back, disappearing out of relationship. We kind of land in our own embodiment. This is Kaya Viveka, the solitude of the body. <clears throat> that we're not bonded so much to the sense contact that comes in, right? So the, like the sound, the sound of our cough comes, and we go out to it. That's we're bonding to it, we're sticking to it. Sometimes then in practice we get the sense, I'm here, there's presence, the cough arises, 
and I'm not sticking to it. It's not sticking to me. It's just sound, poof, it arises and it passes away, resting in the awareness. He also speaks about citta viveka, the solitude of mind. Mind here, citta is heart-mind. It's not just up in the head, right? It's the whole sensitive, resonant, um, receptive intelligence of our sensitivity. The citta can be open, bright, spacious, um, sweet, uh, clear, strong, radiant, suffusive, alive. And we know, don't we, that the chitta, the heart-mind, can also be contracted, dull, tight, scratchy, irritable, whatever, name your, name your, name your poison, whatever it is. We can see the resonances of the old resonances in it. Chitta viveka, solitude of the mind, is not bonding to the resonances that come up through the heart mind. Right? What does that mean? When we practice, when we take time for kaya viveka, we take time for our own embodiment here. As we settle in, one of the things that happens is that the citta, the heart-mind, starts to resonate with itself because it's not having so many things to feed it here. So what I mean by that is normally this heart-mind, many of us as adults, manage the heart-mind, to not feel too much of that, not be too exposed there or too vulnerable here or not feeling that difficult thing. We manage it in the best way we can. God love us. right? Whatever that is, we do. And it may be we just try and keep the status quo of that sensitive feeling life in some kind of status quo. So the ways we do that, normally, conventional, and there's not they're not wrong. But, you know, it might be the... What do you do to just have your heart-mind okay enough at home? We might turn on the telly. It just gives us some company, right? <sighs> we might have a beer. Just kind of smoothing the agitation or whatever that may do. And again, maybe really harmless things. I might go stroke my cat. She might not need stroking or want stroking or desire stroking, but the reaching out goes, stroke the cat, and the heart-mind, ah, it's a little relaxation, something soft and smooth and black in her case, right, that just soothes us a little bit. It might be phone a friend, it might be, you know, whatever it is, the ways we do that, but here those things aren't available for us, so the chitta starts to resonate with itself, and that's a mixed bag, isn't it? It's what do we get? We're not able to keep the stasis in the same way. What comes is a number of things actually, but it includes the old residues, the old stuck stuff. 
that hasn't been digested. The unswallowed, the things that were too impactful, that that made an impression, like Shada talked about this morning. Things that have made an impression that haven't yet allowed to be um, resonated with in order to be seen in their impermanence, their uh, not-self-nature, that they can be liberated. So the old residues. Ah, (laughs) it's not all that's there in the chitta, but the old residues can arise on retreat, right? The old hurt, rage, grief, worry, disappointment... Bitterness, desiring, those old residues, and they come up to be handled. So yesterday I said, take your hands off, right? We need to take, really take our hands off, leave ourselves alone. And then as these resonances of the chitta come forth, we learn how to skillfully handle them, right? And that's part of our practice. Chitta isn't all that. This is also the place, what also comes up is our courage, our aspiration, our beauty, our nobility, our strength, our determination, our willingness, our all of these beautiful qualities also arise in the heart-mind. <coughs> Chitta viveka means not bonding to them. Not that they're not sticky, but they are sticky, aren't they? They arise. How might they arise for you here? We don't see it immediately so clearly. We don't say, oh yeah, this is the chitta sankara arising. These are my old residues. Okay, welcome. That's not how it usually works. Usually what happens is we start noticing some thought pattern that we're spinning around in, right? (coughs) Or some agitation, or some mood, or something, or there's some complaining, or worry, or something's happening in the mind before the awareness kicks in, before we go, oh, that's right, I'm at Gaia House, what am I aware of? Am I aware? Oh, 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 it's this. And it's not always welcome, is it? If we could have arranged our life in such a way that we never had to go to some of those places, we've all tried that. We would have done So how to handle these old residues that come up here? So first, maybe I give some examples. Um, uh, Actually, the the one that came to me earlier, and I'm not quite sure how this fits in with the analysis here, but I remember today I asked one of you to ring the bell for the standing circle, and Keith offered... And I don't know how that was for you, Keith, thank you. Or if anything came up or you noticed anything while you took that off. He's nodding. Did you see the mind move around it? He's nodding. It's not just, it's like things aren't always so simple, right? I love to. Right. And what what I thought of, because I know it's not just, it's not just, okay, sure, I'll ring the bell. There's some extra kind of, um, things get intensified here a little bit. Our mind might say, oh, it's not a big deal, you're only ringing the bell. But actually, things can come up. So I remembered um, this, gosh, about 16, 17 years ago, and I lived in a 
a sister centre in Massachusetts called IMS, and um, it was a New Year retreat. I wasn't a teacher. I was uh, there for other reasons. Um, and it was the New Year's retreat that was being taught by uh, one of our senior teachers in our tradition, Jack Cornfield, who some of you may have heard of or sat with or know. Or, um, <clears throat> and he was teaching with four junior teachers, and it was the last sitting of the night, and they were all having a Dharma discussion in the dining room. And um, he said to me, oh, will you go and lead that sitting and ring the bell at the end? Please, Catherine. And I said, yeah, okay. So I went, and it's a big hall, and there were 100 people. And I'd been a yogi there. I'd never sat at the front. I'd been a retreatant, never sat at the front. And it's on a little platform, a bit bigger than this one. It's a little bit more grand than here. And I sat at the front, and my mind was saying, okay, that's all you have to do. You don't have to say anything. You just have to sit there, and at 9.30, ring the bell. Don't make a problem out of it. (laughs) It's not a big deal. Right? Um, So this is the story. But our inner experience can be something quite different. And I remember sitting there, feeling a hundred faces looking at me. They weren't. They had their eyes closed in this tradition. (laughs) But of course, the sense of self can arise really strongly all of a sudden. Right? And then the whole realm of self and other, as the person was asking about, once I get into that realm, then it's happened so fast, it's hard to track and be free. Yeah. And there I was. Mind tries to tell you, me, it's not a big deal. But actually what was happening in my body was, my body was heating up. Right? I was starting to get really hot. And there was a lot of kind of fire coming up in the belly. I had no idea what was going on. It was like kind of charge running up and down my torso and my arms. And I had two jumpers on. And I was like, I have to take my jumper off. But I can't take my jumper off. They're going to see me take my jumper off. You don't take your, jump- you don't take your jumper off if you're at the front. If I'm, if I'm a proper meditator, I work with the sensations. I don't take my jumper off. I don't take your jumper off. And there it's... There's all that self, that strong sense of self arising. It's like, no, breathing out, breathing out, getting more and more contracted, more and more contracted, more and more nervous, more and more the sense they're all looking at me, they're all looking at me, getting hotter and hotter, redder in the face. Spiritual superego, spiritual critic saying, it's not a big deal, Catherine. <laughs> you know, why aren't you cool, relaxed, wide, spacious, open, wide, luminous and radiant? Well, I wasn't. It was this, it was hot, I was self-conscious, I was nervous, I was paranoid, I was, it was all, I don't know if this was your experience, Keith, but <laughs> this was my experience today. It, not that bad. <laughs> oh, you're much cooler than me. <laughs> what did he, have his, he kept his jumper on. Yeah. It's worse indoors, Keith. <laughs> and there it was, in a suffering for half an hour, dying to get out of there, then as the sense of self arises very strongly, also what arises is time, the sense of time. How much longer do I have to endure? Do any of you have that arise in the meditation? Sense of self is arising, but we're not clear it's that. What we see is the patterning in the mind. I didn't see it was my sense of self. I didn't think I should have a sense of self. Certainly not about that, right? But sense of self arising in relation to time, when's it going to be over? And I think I did have, I can't remember what I did with my jumper, but I 
I either kept it on or took it off. But the point was I suffered a lot in that. It's like burning up, all of that burning up of the kind of dross of my self-consciousness and the pain of my um, confusion of self and other. The pain of my limitation, actually, and that's what we face. I once thought on retreat, actually, the parts of you that are already enlightened and awake and free, they're not the bits that come on retreat. <laughs> they're fine. <laughs> what can sh- I mean, and that helps us have enough resource to be here. But what can come up is the clarification, the purification, where the metal gets heated up and reshaped. And that's not always so comfortable. So how does it arise then that we stick? I was really sticking to that resonance of self that was arising in the Dharma Hall that night. It didn't just arise and pass in a flash. It arose and it stuck. And in the sticking, there's our work. There's our work. So how might this show up for you here? And it doesn't have to be so extreme. There was a lot of self-consciousness there. Sometimes it's very subtle. The, The others don't even have to be there doing anything. The others are already often operating in our mind. We've got the self, we've got the other, and the whole the whole display is happening in here as well. These old residues are like uh, and what is called chitta sankara, the patterning of the chitta, the way it's been patterned, the way it's been programmed according to the conditions of our life. It's been programmed in a certain way. It's been conditioned in a certain way. It's not the ultimate truth about us at all, but it feels like it sometimes doesn't it? It feels like it when those sticky places arise. So how to handle and hold the confusion of self and other while we're sitting here with our in our kaya viveka in our the solitude of our embodiment. How can we work that territory that when we leave or when we go into the small group or when we have our meeting or when we go home, that that territory of self and other can be worked while we're here, not through analysis, but through handling and holding the resonances of self that press up in consciousness while we're practicing. So let me give an example of then, in the first example, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to hold it. I was just about able to stay there. That was as much as I could do, and that's, that's a good start. Probably ten years before that, I would never have been able to even say yes. Right? So that's, that's a good start. Sometimes we're just keeping our feet on the ground with the difficulty that's arising. Homage to that. Homage to that. Other times there are more resources present. Certain faculties are stronger. And we may see at first sitting here the thought, the thinking pattern of a, let's say it's, 
Maybe I'll think of another example. Okay, it's an example I've used a few times, but I, I yeah. So, uh, <laughs> now what's arising is, I can't give another example about me. You can't talk about me again. It's not very good, is it? I should talk about someone else. Don't talk about me. I'm supposed to be the teacher. But anyway, this one's about me. Um, but it could just as well be about you, probably. And this was uh, on, a ret- on a retreat, because that's where you get to see it, don't you, very clearly and closely. It's a little stark sometimes, but it's where we can start to handle it, where we can't keep moving away. That's both the blessing and the curse of the retreat. Actually, the blessing in the end. Um, and on this retreat, the teachers would come and give the instructions every morning. And there was one teacher I really took a disliking to. It happens, doesn't it? Sometimes in the realm of self and other. There are people we like and those we do not. And one of them I took a disliking to. But because I was left with my own mind... It's terrible, isn't it? There's no one to complain to about this teacher. You know, I just had to see my own mind around it, rather than what we often do is we find someone to, you know, have our little negative merge with about the about the other, and that's how we manage it sometimes. But I was left with my mind, and um, she would come in every few days and give some instructions, and I was finding myself really angry, and she's doing it all wrong, and. All my judgment first. First the layers of judgment. But of course I thought that was true. I thought that was the truth. Often what kicks up first in the mind, it's very compelling, isn't it? The judgment comes, she shouldn't be here. It should be somebody else. And it feels like a truth. And we do it with our world. That thing shouldn't really be there. I want it to go away. Someone, someone noticed this yesterday of seeing they're not used to practicing with so many people so close, and there was the thought arising, that person shouldn't be there, right? And then they saw that and could laugh. The way that we want to arrange our world according to what's comfortable for us. So there was the judgment first. Then after a few days, I was still with it and I was angry. And it it took me quite a long time. Sometimes it takes a while to wake up to these things. She, um, it was about after about two weeks, I think, she got up and after her teaching and left. And I was really angry. And um, I saw that she got up and left and she was happy and smiling. She really wasn't suffering. Right? And then I got, then there's the Kaya Viveka, right? My embodiment, this location, oh, chitta, sankara, the patterning, the old programming, and the suffering is actually happening here. It's happening here. My mind says she's causing it. She wasn't causing this. It was giving rise to the opportunity to start to see this. And it took two weeks before I go, oh, actually the suffering is arising here. Okay, how can I handle this? How can I begin to work with this skillfully? Coming in from jump, uh, letting go of the judgment, letting go of the story of the patterning, and coming into the resonance of the patterning. Right? That's immediate. It's not a story about what should and shouldn't be. It's an immediate resonance here and now 
of, in this case it was anger, and kind of scratchy, barbed wire kind of coarse... Any of you ever have that? (laughs) A kind of coarse um, irritation in the system, in the nervous system, actually. And um, and beginning to breathe with that, beginning to hold that in awareness. Oh, oh, it's this. Listening to this. Listening to the resonance of this. Resting in the knowing of this. The awareness started to widen. The, cons- the contraction started to soften. I felt the pain of it. As the anger softened, there were some tears, some pain, some hurt, some old grief. The softening, the moving, the shifting in that moment. What we want to check is that the continuity when we wake up to these residues, that the continuity is with the awareness. Staying in the knowing, the listening, the resting, the patterning arises and we see the attitude to it. Am I trying to fix it, push it away, do something with it? Can I rest back? Can I widen and soften? Let the continuity be with the awareness and rest back. Sometimes we need to acknowledge the sense of self that has gotten whipped up into shape. Here it was, as I listened deeply, here's the one. Here's the one who feels hurt. Here's the one in that case that doesn't feel seen, that were arising in me. Similarly, you know, many things where I could see the mind complaining, where I can see the mind complaining about something, when I listen deeply, sense the resonance of it, very often there's a, oh, here's the one who doesn't feel properly taken care of. Here's the one who's longing for someone to see her. Here's the one who wants to be held. Right? Some of these very base um, human uh, resonances that we can start to listen to in ourselves. The um, Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, as many of you know, who sits here, uh, she actually, Kuan Yin doesn't actually sit here, this is a statue. Right, But at the same time, she does, in as much as she sits there and there and here and there. Right? This is a universal principle and is part of our nature that we can start to um, uh, know, actually. And what, it's, what, it, what is said about Kuan Yin, so this is a... This is a you know, particular map of a particular story of a way of understanding experience. It is said that she, who is the, the bodhisattva of compassion, compassion is the particular kind of love that resonates with suffering. Right? There's other kinds of love, like joy and kindness. And, right? But compassion is the kind of love that resonates with suffering. And that's her specialty, if you like. And it's said that she is the one who hears. She hears the 
cries of the world. She hears the cries of the world. She who listens, and she came to awakening through inquiring into the question, who hears? Who hears? Something about that sacred listening, where the listening is available, listening to the cries of the world, and she pours her healing balm on them. These cries arise here, and they arise there, and they arise here. And that knowing awareness can also listen. Listen deeply to the cry without becoming the cry, without needing to fix the cry, without saying, oh, don't cry, or you shouldn't cry. But resonating with that, with an intimacy that is breathtaking, not bonded to the suffering, not bonded to the cry, resting in her location. The intimacy is not like anything the mind can conceive of as intimacy, which is usually about two things coming together. This is not two. This is the intimacy of awakening, where there is no longer confusion about self and other. The problem has gone out. The separation has gone out. And in listening to that cry, the intimacy is not bonded, but is perfectly attuned. And from that awakened uh, spot, a response may arise. This is not esoteric. This is our nature. This is something you, we either seek for or long for in an, in an other, or we long for it in ourselves. And as we practice we can, with awareness, we can start to rest back and listen. Start to feel. It won't be an image of ourself. It won't be a construct or a way of, now I'm going to be the good listener. That's already too much. But that taking our hands off, resting into the knowing, not bonding, not gluing to the resonance, we can start to hear it more clearly, see it more clearly. And without confusion, know that the suffering that arises here or there, here or there, here or there, here or there, is not so different. But sometimes what makes that difficult for us, we may feel the sensitivity, but we get lost in the suffering of ourself or the other. Right? So again, that question of how to be intimate and not attached. So keep practicing. This is how we find out. Resting with the awareness. Knowing what is arising, seeing where we bond to it, where we stick to what is arising as if we have to do something about what is arising. The less we can do with it, the more we can rest back and have what, again, Ajahn Chah calls meditation. You may or may not have a reaction to this. I certainly would have done many times. He calls it a holiday for the mind. (laughs) Meditation is a holiday for the mind where... It doesn't always feel like that, does it? But 
It's where the old residues can come up and like old dead skin, they can start to be sloughed off. There can be a healing and we can um, rest in something of the chitta that is not just the old residues, right? The spaciousness of the chitta, the kindness, the radiance, the tenderness. So let's finish, uh, let's end with just taking a moment or a minute to listen together, to listen. And I'll end with a verse that has really helped me in my practice again and again. And it's from a nun from the Zen tradition. Uh, And she's speaking about the listening and where it can point us. So it's very short. I offer this to you. She said, For 66 years, my eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. Tell me no more about moonlight. I have already said enough 
Ask me no more about moonlight. I have already said enough. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.